This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. In light of the current events taking place around the world concerning COVID-19, we are opening the show with a message from one of our past guests. This is Delphine O'Rourke, and I'm a partner with the law firm of Dwayne Morris in Philadelphia and in New York. And I focus on working with clients on emergency preparedness, response, and recovery. But with the COVID-19 epidemic, I'm also receiving questions from friends and family and people at our, fr- at our kids' school saying, what about these situations? What should I think about to prepare? So as you are preparing, and preparedness is key for the COVID-19 epidemic and the possibility that will continue for some time, there are things to think about, and this is a good opportunity to engage with your employer, engage with your human resources department, engage with your manager around your company's approach to the COVID epidemic. Every company is working through their approaches and taking slightly different approaches based on the industry yet there are state and federal laws that are still applicable. So, you know, when you're engaging with your employer or HR or supervisor, there are areas to think about, including if there's a waiting period or you're quarantined because someone at work may have been infected or exposed, or there's concern that you might have been exposed and you need to work from home. What is your company's policy towards a waiting period or quarantine? How long do you need to be quarantined? What are accommodations that can be made? Could you, for example, telecommute? Is there a video conferencing possibility? Is there another way that you can get your work done to the extent that your health permits? What's the pay? Will you be paid? Are you an exempt worker? Are you a non-exempt worker? What's your company's approach to paying for time off during quarantine and waiting periods? It is important to be calm and prepared, and these are just important dialogues to have with, again, your employer, HR department, or your supervisor on the approach that your company is taking um, so that you can make your decisions ahead of time and be prepared for an eventual situation. Thank you so much. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for another week of Women to Watch. It's always great to be back in the studio to bring you another inspirational story uh, of a woman from around the world. With me this evening is award-winning author, speaker, and educator, Kekla Magoon. Um, She is going to be joining me in just a moment by phone. Uh, She's um, an award-winning author, and her most recent book is called Light It Up, and we're going to be talking about uh, all of her books in just a few minutes. If you're new to the show, be sure to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you their own expertise and inspiration in their industries of health, finance, technology, business, and leadership. 
And for the latest uh, on the show, including events in our uh, lineup, which we have an incredible lineup of guests scheduled through the summer, be sure to visit us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T, and be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Um, We love to hear from our listeners and our audience is continuing to expand, which is really exciting. So now I am thrilled and honored to welcome to the show Kekla Magoon, again, the award-winning author, speaker, and educator, um, author of the most recent book called Light It Up. Kekla, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. And I know you're on the road, um, as you often are. Hopefully you're not running into any issues as you're traveling. There's a lot going on in the world today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so listen, I wanted to start off the show with, you know, I was doing my research on you and, and something that made me laugh when I went to your website. Um, it, it described, I, I guess it was you kind of speaking and, and you, I laughed when I read from your about page, um, you were describing a little bit about your mom being so proud of your ability to learn to read at age two, but beyond that, who really cares about going back that far (laughs) (laughs) and not wanting to share anything about your background? And you know me, I'm all about, you know, the background and kind of connecting the dots between that little girl and the leader that she is today. So I'd love for you to talk for just a few minutes about your younger years growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, excuse me. Yeah, so I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and um, I am biracial. So my dad is black, was born in West Africa in Cameroon. Uh, My mom is white. She grew up in Michigan, um, and they met in college at the University of Michigan. And, um, you know, I came along shortly thereafter. (laughs) Uh, And um, so growing up in Indiana, I was um, one of very few black and biracial kids in my school. Um, I was mostly surrounded by kids who are white. There certainly is a significant black population in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't part really the community that I lived in and grew up in. Um, And so a lot of what my experience now as an adult is sort of looking back at some of those experiences as a young person and um, the identity that I formed sort of in, um, in that space where I was very different from everyone around me and how, you know, that experience of being different <laughs> with, uh, from everyone around me sort of shaped my identity in particular ways um, and the ways that I now, through my work writing for children and young adults and writing for, um, to represent voices of children and young adults, uh, particularly black and biracial mm-hmm. young voices, um, you know, sort of goes back to that, that feeling that, you know, I sort of carved my identity out of a different space than a lot of people who have the experience of being black and biracial in the United States. So tell me, I mean, obviously I would say, you know, today there, there are more, but when you're a kid in a school or a classroom um, feeling as though you're not like all the rest, which, you know, we know is really kind of the awesome piece and that's what we want to teach children, right? You don't want to be like everyone else, but when would you say you, you know, as you were trying to figure that out and work through that, when would you say in your life um, you were or made peace with who you are and kind of embraced the differences? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's it's sort of a whole arc 
uh, and trajectory of, of figuring out who you are. And I think it changes over time, right? I feel like I'm still in some ways discovering who I am and still in many ways changing who I am and trying to become the person that I want to be. Um, I think that when I was a kid, I think I was very, a very confident and, you know, precocious in all the things you would say about a bright little girl. Um, I was, I was, I think very confident. I was very verbal, right? My mother will tell you, I learned to read it too. And, you know, <laughs> loved to tell stories and, you know, was already a writer, she will say, even though I'm not, I don't necessarily remember that as part of my very young childhood. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> feels like a little bit of revisionist history, but maybe she knows, you know, she has a different perspective on me than I do. Yeah. So, um, you know, she would say that I was doing that all along. Um, and I think that around middle school was when I started to realize that I was different from other people. Um, I didn't really grow up with an awareness of myself as a black person. I mean, I knew intellectually, right, that <laughs> my dad was one skin color, my mom is one skin color, and that what that means. Right. Um, but I didn't really have an experience of feeling different um, until middle school um, when I was teased and bullied a lot for um, my hair being very, very curly. And, um, you know, I mean, it's a it's biracial hair. It's uh, you know, it's, it's its own thing and it does its own thing <laughs> and it has always done its own thing. And, you know, 30 years of trying to have it not do its own thing. Led me to just, you know what? I'm going to have it do its own thing. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, if we, if we look even just through the lens of something like hair, right. You know, in middle school, I was very ashamed of my hair. I was, uh, you know, embarrassed that, you know, it was different than everybody else's, not because I actually felt that way. When I stood in front of the mirror and looked at my hair, I was like, oh, no, this is I can see what's pretty about it. Um, and I feel very, in retrospect, sort of proud of that fact that like I even even though the world was telling me, you know, you're different, it's not good. And I felt all of that, like I felt all of the shame of that and all of the sadness of that and all of the like, how am I ever going to fit in of that? Um, I could still stand in the mirror and look at myself and see something good and be sort of confused about why no one else could see it. Um, yeah. And sort of that little seed of confidence, I think, was always there, even mm. though it got pretty well buried for those few years. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it took me a long time to just even with, you know, to feel comfortable, you know, going to get my hair cut and styled and feel like I could, you know, do something with my hair that really showcased what it is and, and how it is. Um, and that process took me till my late 20s to really feel like, okay, I'm not going to just pull it all back in braids, which I still do sometimes because it's nice. But, you know, I feel comfortable now to have my hair out. I feel comfortable to be a little bit different. I feel comfortable whether I'm wearing makeup or not. I feel like all of those things that sort of have been, you know, a long evolution. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of really feeling like, Oh, okay. This is who I am, and you know, the world will take me <laughs> yeah, as I am. Right. Um, you know, I, I feel I do feel like I've gotten a lot closer to that. I mean, I think everyone has moments of self-doubt and insecurity, and you know, why can't I be all these other things that I'm not? Um, you know, I still feel those things from time to time, but I think that my teens were particularly hard in terms of feeling confident in myself, but then. In college and in my early 20s, I started to, to build a sense of who I was and who I wanted to be um, and started working toward that. And I definitely feel like in my 30s, I've, um, I've achieved that sense of satisfaction with who I am and what I have to offer to the world. And there's certainly still things that I want and ways that I'm trying to grow. But I feel like um, I feel like it's 
feels somewhat recent that yeah, I arrived. That's a, that's of- awesome. You know, when we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to, you know, I know you're out there teaching and speaking to young people. And how can we get them to understand that, you know, uh, before they age, just, you know, we all get more confident as we get older. So um, we're going to circle back with Tecla Magoon, award-winning author and speaker. Stay with us for Mary Manzo of our Tech Watch. We'll be right back. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso of Pathways Consulting Group. The last couple of weeks, my segments have been about the lack of women in the technology industry and why it matters and what are some of the steps to closing the gap. To recap, when men and women work together, their complementary traits create innovation in the workplace. And although more companies are including women in their technology roadmap, the percentages of women earning computer science degrees keeps decreasing. To break the cycle, we have to address the issue top-down and bottom-up together. Last week, I spoke about the top-down. This week, I'll talk about the bottom-up. A psychologist friend told me, because boys and girls are wired differently, boys will naturally excel in technology education. That answer bothered me. I didn't like it, and I refused to believe it. So off I went to do some research. My daughter, who works in the educational system K-12, through provided me with information that gave me hope. Through 21st century learning, the approach to the information age is revolutionizing the way boys and girls learn starting in preschool through 12th grade. The focus is on the skills necessary to succeed in future jobs. When 21st century learning was being formed, business leaders were asked what skills the future employee would need. The response was employees will need to think critically and creatively, collaborate with others, solve problems, lead, and make decisions. Therefore, 21st century core focus is on learning, literacy, and life. Now add STEM learning to 21st century learning. STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. Across the country, elementary schools are incorporating computer science and STEM learning at the preschool age and up without any gender bias. The way students are being taught at a very early age is much different than the way we were taught and takes the future of work into consideration and eliminates gender bias. As example, the new new math, it's taught in such a way that it doesn't matter how a boy or girl is wired. This is music to my ears and is one of the ways I believe the top down and bottom up approach will shorten the gender gap and bring more women into the technology industry. What are your thoughts? Email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Welcome back. I'm speaking to Kekla Magoon, award-winning author, speaker, and educator. And, uh, you know, just before the break, Kekla, we were talking about, I think it's such an important topic, particularly for, for young girls. Um, the idea that it's it's so much better to be different than it is to be like everyone else around us. And while there's so much conversation and wonderful books like yours and, and, and women like you going in and speaking to young people, there is still always that insecurity. And I wonder, gosh, you know, when you have an opportunity to be in front of a group of, of young women in particular, um, what is it that you say to them? 
to try to help build that self-esteem that, you know, might break through and have them understand? I think there are a couple of themes that I touch on that speak to that across the board. I mean, the main thing that I'm talking about most of the time (laughs) is that everyone's voice matters and that everyone has the ability to make a contribution that's very meaningful to the world. And sometimes those contributions feel small in the moment, but they're part of a bigger act, right? They're part of a bigger change that can happen. Um, And so I'm often talking about how we can use our individual strengths in combination with other people's to, to, you know, for example, spark a protest movement or um, to make change on broad societal scales, but also how the sort of incremental things that we do day by day to build ourselves as better people, even to build ourselves as writers or to people who have a voice in the world in whatever way that is, right? For me, that's the lens of writing. But for other people, the idea of having a voice in the world might mean something different. Um, And so I talk about how all the little things that we do in service of our goals, all the little things that we do to try to make the world a better place, whatever that means to us, are really important and that everybody can play a role in that. Mm. So I try to give them some sense that their voice, and again, that can mean a lot of different things. I'm often talking about writing, but it can mean activism. It can mean invention. It can mean science. It can mean caretaking, right? There's all of these different ways to contribute. There's all these different ways to speak right. uh, in the world. Right. And so I, I try to inspire them to to figure out what that is for them, like what that thing is for them. Mm, yeah. And then... I- Mm-hmm. No, I love that. I love that because, what, you know, it is about finding your voice and it. That doesn't mean just speaking. Sometimes it means listening, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. The importance of listening. <laughs> and, you know, I have a quote here. You said, I find myself identifying with the unnamed people in the crowd who did so many things that we'll never know. And I think that's important as well when, when we're speaking to young people that in order to make a difference, you don't have to be on the global stage and a name that's recognizable. Talk about that a little bit, what you meant by that quote. Yeah, so, well, there's <laughs> there's several things, and I'll say two of them. One is that I write a lot about history. I write a lot about social justice movements. I write about the civil rights movement, both in a historical and a contemporary context. And the way that we talk about that movement, as an example, Uh, we talk about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We talk about Rosa Parks. We talk about people who we regard as heroes because they made this huge impact on the historical landscape. And we, as a culture, as a society, we tend to frame a lot of narratives about success and a lot of narratives about social progress and a lot of narratives in general with heroes, right? This person became exceptional, right? The whole, just our fixation on biographies, our fixation on celebrity culture, it all focuses on this idea that there are these particular people who are particularly special. Mm-hmm. And I try to complicate that idea a little bit in a couple of ways. One, by just reminding people that I use the lens of the civil rights movement as an example, but it applies to a lot of other areas. Um, we, when we talk about the heroes of the movement, we're actually only talking about one piece of the movement. What really happened there was hundreds and thousands of people, especially young people, <laughs> took to the streets, marching, put, putting their lives on the line, putting their freedom on the line for something that they really powerfully believed in. The March on Washington is a great example. Dr. King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and gave the I Have a Dream speech, and it was powerful and moving, 
But the powerful thing about that moment was not Dr. King's words. It was the fact that over 250,000 people from around the country had traveled to stand on the mall to be there to hear him. And we're never going to know the names of all of those people. But if they hadn't each individually gotten on a bus and come from wherever they lived to be there in that moment and hear those words, the sort of government, right, would not have recognized the power of this movement, recognized the need. And so we sometimes have to turn that camera lens around away from that leader, that hero, to the people who are actually doing the work on the ground. Mm, Same with Rosa Parks, Mm -hmm. right? The Montgomery bus boycott was Mm -hmm. a movement of hundreds of people not riding the bus for a year. It wasn't just one woman who sat down in protest. Mm -hmm. And so for me, reminding young people in particular, but all of us, that Again, those acts that seem small, showing up to a demonstration can actually be part of a bigger movement. Right. And then the second thing is to remind us that all of those people who we now regard as heroes were once just kids, were once regular people who had a dream or a goal or a vision for what they wanted to do in the world. And they just went off and pursued it little bit by little bit and eventually became someone legendary. Mm-hmm. And that we all have that potential in us, I believe, if we keep pursuing our goals. Right. I think that's a, 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 an excellent message to share with young people. Um, tell me when you discovered that your voice would be best heard through writing. I, I know that you wrote your first novel in high school, which is very unusual. <laughs> um, tell, yeah. us, tell us what that was. And, and was that the, the moment that, you know, you realized, gosh, my, my love really, my joy comes from writing? Surprisingly, it wasn't. I I have always been a big reader. I've loved to read all my life. And that's because my mother used to take me to the library and I checked out all the books I could carry. And, you know, reading has always meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what motivated me that at that moment, it was right around the time I was graduating from high school to sit down and write this novel. It was 80 pages. It was called Revenge. It was, um, (laughs) it was a, a sort of thriller romance. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, And yes, it was very exciting. Uh, And I'm, you know, I I mean, I remain proud of that manuscript, even though it will not probably ever be published in any form. (laughs) But, you know, it, 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 interestingly, I did that. I sat down and wrote an entire novel and never once did I think, oh, I'm going to be a writer. Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, well, that was, you, you were compelled to do that, but perhaps not aware yet where that was going to lead you. Um, We have to go into our next break. I'm speaking with Kekla Magoon, an author, speaker, and educator. And we are going into our break. Stay tuned for our Finance Watch with Terry and Maggie. We'll be right back. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Hi, this is Maggie, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Being on the Finance Watch team, I'm sure our listeners are expecting us to shed some light on this current market volatility. We have Fortis Wealth's Chief Investment Officer, Matt Topley, here to help us understand the current financial situation. So, Matt, help us understand what happened. Yeah, Maggie, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, We are in, right now, we had the fastest 10% correction in the history of markets first, and the fastest 20% correction in the history of markets. And then as I'm sitting here today, we've now accomplished the fastest 25% correction. It's surely a shell shock to everybody. Uh, It was 
coronavirus primarily. Uh, we had a relatively expensive market fundamentally versus history. So when the coronavirus hit, that exacerbated the move down uh, because we already had an expensive market. And the second thing that happened was energy prices collapsed due to a, a new power struggle between the Saudis and Russia. And now with coronavirus and everybody shutting it down, uh, we're gonna we're most likely to see a, a short bear market and recession. So what's what's some of the good news here? The good news is the prices of stocks were quite high fundamentally, and within ten days they're already below the median long term range. The other good news is uh, since World War II we've had twenty seven corrections at ten percent or more, and we've had twelve full blown bear markets. And I've said it before on the show, in that time frame, the S&P is up 15,000%. So for people with cash and, and three, five-year time horizon, you're seeing an opportunity. Uh, we do not try to uh, call the bottom, but we're seeing an opportunity to put money into equities at ridiculously cheap uh, at cheaper prices uh, than uh, 10, 15 days ago and below the median range. Now, they very very well may get cheaper, but we wouldn't try to time the bottom. We do some dollar cost averaging. On average, a bear market corrections, 35%. We're already three quarters of the way there. But your probabilities of doing well in three, five, 10, 25 years has just gotten dramatically better within the last 10 days. So keep on dollar cost averaging in your 401ks. Uh, don't hit the panic button and sell because you'll never be able to, you're going to be locking in losses. And then the third thing is, if you are sitting on a lot of cash, uh, I would start putting it to work slowly. That's great advice, Matt. We really appreciate you being here today. And I am Maggie and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Peace out. I'm talking with an author, uh, Kekla Magoon, and just before the break, I had asked you when you felt you discovered that, you know, your voice would be best heard through writing, and I mentioned your novel in high school. I love that. Um, But you said that actually that was, you know, you were, I guess, just interested. Something compelled you to write um, at that time, but that was not when you discovered it. When, When was it? It was actually not until after I graduated from college. I had entered college pre-med and quickly realized that it wasn't probably the ideal path for me, but I didn't know what I wanted to do instead. And so it took me a little time to sort of jump off of the the path that I was on. Uh, But I ended up majoring in history and taking all these different kinds of classes. And um, I took a reading and writing poetry class and a reading and writing fiction class, which were okay, but I didn't you know, really spark there. But in my junior and senior years of college, I took a couple of African-American literature and African-American studies courses with Professor Harkins, who um, had us writing sort of personal narratives um, and sort of memories and different experiences. And so it was a different kind of writing than I had done in the past. I found it very challenging and sort of strange at the time. But I remember receiving her notes back on my my writing and she, you know, she kept writing, you know, this narrative is very powerful. You know, your voice is important. She would say things like that on the pieces. Mm-hmm. And at the time I sort of thought, well, what, you know, I just, I wrote that, you know, in like an hour the night before it was due, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> my voice is important. What is she talking about? And, and, and I think though that that messaging, like that hint that you're a good writer, your voice matters. You need to be telling these stories. This is important. That, ultimately did sink in. Oh, and what she was a great teacher for, for saying that she to was. you. 
Yeah. Yeah, she was a wonderful teacher. And so when I got to New York, which is where I moved right after I graduated from college, I found that I was writing every day after work and I was like rushing home from my job to write. And eventually I realized, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm spending a lot of time on this writing thing. Maybe yeah. <laughs> I should actually do something with it. Right. And I ended up getting a Master of Fine Arts in writing. Yeah. Well, was, so, but, you know, here's a question. I think there's a lot of young people that, that enjoy writing and dream of it. and But there's that, you know, that little voice in the back of the mind, oh, you'll never make a dime in your life. <laughs> you know, was there a concern for you about, you know, how can you, can I earn a living doing this? And you know, you have done very, very well, and you've been recognized and received many awards. Um, but was there a time when you were, you know, skeptical of going that route? I mean, I I, I entered it relatively slowly. It was one of those sort of uh, exponential kind of curves. Like, I entered it slowly with the assumption that I would not make a living as a writer. I entered it with, I think, relatively practical expectations for what my career was going to be, but I, I really wasn't enjoying and connecting with my day jobs. And I, I knew that it was very hard to make a living as a writer. And, and I, I very sort of quickly moved from a, well, I'm just going to write on the side and I'm going to keep a day job all the time mm -hmm. to really badly wanting to be independent and to do my own stuff. So mm -hmm. I, it did take a long time. It took, you know, probably almost 10 years to build up to the point where I was doing only my own writing as well as wow. speaking and teaching about my own work. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I did a ton of for hire writing projects, um, for school and library market. So a lot of biographies, a lot of history topics, uh, some articles, I did some encyclopedia entries, like all kinds of things like that. And a couple of sort of odd jobs here and there. Um, I was a grant writer, so I did some freelance grant writing and all of these different kinds of things that I did to put together that income while I was building toward being a full-time writer. I, I was never sure when I started this path if I was actually ever going to make it, quote unquote, right? Yeah, <laughs> so it's sort of it's, it takes a lot of yeah. terminology, but <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, right? Um, but I guess there are different avenues. You know, you, you can be writing for others, right, in, in order um, to generate revenue, but really it, you're your style of writing is very, very unique, and you are going into topics that are um, very interesting. And I'll mention you've done fiction and nonfiction. Um, some of your books, The Rock and the River uh, is one. How It Went Down is another. Uh, the Season of Sticks, Malone, and X. And for you know our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with them, your most recent is uh, light it up. And, and I did read that. Um, I wonder if you can describe if there's some kind of a theme throughout all of your books that people would recognize and say, oh, yes, that's Kekla Magoon. That's one of her books. I think there are. And I think it has to do with some of what we spoke about in terms of individual voice and um, and a lot of different perspectives mattering and a lot of different voices being important to the conversation and that people have to work together to create change and the sense of being an ordinary person in the crowd. I really, I play on those ideas a lot in, in a number of different ways. Um, Light It Up is a multiple viewpoint novel in which 15 different characters in a community respond after the controversial shooting of a black teen by a police officer. Mm -hmm. And so it's written in vignettes. And so all of these different characters have a perspective on the shooting. And so you have another police officer from the force. You have the daughter of the police officer who 
did the shooting. You have the best friends of the girl who died. You have the, you know, other teenagers in the community. We have the leader of a local gang. We have um, a PR exec who's black, but whose responsibility is to help uh, represent the police department's point of view mm-hmm. on what happened. And yeah. so, like, there's a lot of a lot of voices in the book and a lot of complexity in the book. And mm-hmm. for me, that is one of the themes that I explore in my work is the idea of perspective and the idea that if you look at something from a different angle, you might see it slightly differently. And that's not to say that every thing that everyone would, anyone would ever say is, you know, completely true or completely accurate, but it, it illuminates something to understand how different people see the same question and the same problem and the same issue. It gets you thinking beyond the story. I mean, I, I, I thought it was brilliant the way you did that, you know, to, a story is never just a story, right? There are, as you say, different perspectives from all the the people and characters involved. So it was really fascinating. Thank you. We're going to go into our last break. I'm speaking with Kekla Magoon. Again, she's an author and, and a speaker and an educator. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Stay with us for Dr. Marianne Ritchie for our Health Watch Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now. Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. With the coronavirus, one of the major steps we can all take is to wash our hands very often. Before you eat, before you touch your face, after you cough or sneeze into your bent elbow, and please throw those dirty tissues away, before and after you use the bathroom, wipe the handles of the machines at the gym, and when you get back, wash your hands in the locker room. Wipe the handle of the shopping cart at the supermarket and wash your hands before you open that bag of pretzels in the car. Use soap and water. Wet your hands first. Rub your hands together for at least 20 seconds. That's singing happy birthday twice. Why 20 seconds? Because the friction clears the virus or bacteria from your hands, not the temperature of the water. Cover all surfaces of hands and fingers, including your nails. Use your nails from one hand to scrub the palm of the other and then switch. Interlock your fingers together to really clean the bases. Use one hand to wrap around the thumb to clean it, then switch. Rinse your hands with water and dry thoroughly. Use a disposable paper towel. If cloth, make sure it's clean or just air dry. Use the towel to turn off the faucet and the doorknob as you leave, especially in a public bathroom. Liquid, bar, or powdered forms of soap are acceptable when using soap and water. And let the soap drain from a soap rack. When your hands are not visibly dirty, you can use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. Apply to the palm of one hand and rub hands together. Cover all surfaces, hands, fingers, until your hands are dry. Follow the manufacturer's recommendations regarding the amount of product to use. Alcohol-based sanitizers kill most types of germs, but not all bacteria and viruses that cause diarrhea. Stay up to date. The Center for Disease Control 
cdc.gov is the website. And they have great hand-washing videos, cdc.gov slash hand-washing. Stay safe, divas. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Keckle, I wanted to talk um, about, uh, you, you received a Master of Fine Arts from Vermont College of Fine Arts, where you are on, uh, you're a faculty member, I understand. Um, tell me about when you're, so there's really three things that you're doing on a regular basis, teaching, writing, um, and speaking. And um, I wanted to find out what exactly you're teaching and if your heart kind of belongs to one of the three in particular. I'm going to guess it's writing, but talk about the differences between those three. Sure. Uh, So I I teach in a Master of Fine Arts in Writing program, and it is the program that I graduated from. So it's a, a low residency model writing program in which our students come to campus twice a year in January and July for 10 days each. And that's the beginning and the end of the semester. It's a four semester program. So while they're on campus, they have workshops and they have um, lectures and they present readings and all sorts of, you know, arts community activities and education. And then during the semester, they're paired with a faculty advisor with whom they work one-on-one. And so they send packets of material four times over the course of the semester, basically once a month or once every six weeks. And we review and respond to their material. So it's a very independent study based um, and really helps people strengthen their writing. And so that community has been really important to me as part of my writing life. And in terms of the specific question, writing teaching and speaking, those are the three (laughs) strands that I have in terms of income, but also in terms of creative expression and creative fulfillment. And for me, they work really well as a little triangle (laughs) Mm -hmm. to to feed my work because writing is in many ways where my heart is. But in order to do the work as well as possible, I do feel like I need to be connected to the world in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't be an artist, (laughs) you know, in a garret typing away with, with nothing else. Even though that <laughs> In a dark really room nice by yourself. <laughs> right. It, yeah, it, it yeah. seems nice at times, and I yeah. can sustain that for, you know, a month or two. <laughs> um, but, you know, I write these books in this vacuum, and then they go out into the world. And so I think of the speaking as going out into the world and following the book. So I would go mm. to teacher conferences, librarian conferences, schools to talk to students, middle school, elementary school, high school, college, you know, all different ages, and in addition to adult audiences around the country. And so that makes me feel like, oh, this thing that I'm doing in my alone in my room <laughs> is actually <laughs> going somewhere and, and meeting the readers, staying connected with teenagers really helps to bring their voices to the page. And then the teaching just um, not only do I feel like I'm paying it forward, right, I'm sharing knowledge that's been given to me, but I'm also reinvigorating sort of my intellectual side uh, and it really helps build my skills as a writer to talk about craft and think about craft and Mm. how do I do this work that I'm doing even better. Yeah. So tell me where, you know, inspiration, um, where do you go for that? Or are you in the middle of a typical day and something will occur and you'll be inspired to write about that? Where does your inspiration come from? It comes from a lot of different places. And I, in fact, I structure one of my school visit talks for young people about this exact question because I get the question a lot. And for me, I've discovered that there's basically two broad areas of inspiration for me. One is writing from a place of what I know. Um, So, you know, writing semi-autobiographical, at least emotionally autobiographical works about, you know, black biracial teenagers and things like that. Yeah. But then also writing from a place of questions on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, So writing about 
you know, to imagine what it might be like to live in a different place and time to when I write historical fiction or writing to imagine myself fitting in the world in a different way, right? I have all these questions about who I am and how I fit and how I can be someone who matters. And I write those things into my work. In addition to the big questions of just what if, like, you know, fantasy, let me just imagine what if Robin Hood was a biracial teenage girl? Let me tell that story and and sort of reimagine something that already exists. Yeah. So I'm curious the, when you're meeting, when you're out and about and you're meeting biracial young people today, are you seeing a lot of yourself in them? Or are they kind of at a different level of um, confidence in being different because, you know, we're just organically becoming more and more um, diverse? Yeah, I think that we're becoming more more diverse. And so most of the kids that I am meeting who are biracial or multiracial are not feeling, I think, that isolation that I felt. They're not feeling as different as I felt because they have peers who are also in that situation, right. whether they're exactly, you know, biracial of the exact same two things, they, you know, it doesn't matter, but there's this, this sense of shared multiculturalness, this sense of shared duality mm. um, that they have. And I have met some young people that are, you know, sometimes I go to a, a school and they're, you know, it's a majority white audience and there's like a couple little brown faces out there. And like that, I can feel the impact of that when they come up afterwards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are still, many places where it is a majority white community with just a few faces of color. And I think that when I'm there, I feel a particular connection with those kids because of my own experiences, but it's pretty heartening overall to see how diverse most of the audiences that I speak in front of are and how diverse I think our country is becoming. Yeah. Tell me about your connection to your, your mother's side. I think, you know, I think you're such a beautiful combination. You know, your, your mom has ancestors from Holland and Scotland, and then your dad's from from Cameroon. Um, and I know you spent a couple of years there. What have you learned about, you know, your mother's side, your, your Scottish um, ancestry? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, definitely some of my family members have done, you know, some of the actual genealogy of going all the way back, you know, to look at, you know, where we came from. We are from the McGowan clan from Scotland and, you know, the name has changed over time and, um, and looking at, at those kinds of things. But I did, have opportunities to actually know, you know, my mother's parents and to know some of that family um, in, in ways that I didn't have the opportunity to know um, my some of my dad's family in a more extended way because they were further away. So um, so I, I grew up, you know, eating a few different Dutch foods. I've been to some communities um, that my mom grew up in that were very Dutch. Um, and not not so much of the Scottish background am I aware of, um, but I definitely feel like there were some cultural influences from Holland that came through my grandmother and my mom. Yeah, it's always it's fa- fascinating to me just the genealogy and and kind of exploring and having the opportunity today to kind of find the the parts and bits and pieces that make us who we are. Um, we only have a minute left, Kekla. Tell me what you're working on now. I'm working on a nonfiction book about the Black Panther Party for a young teen audience. And it is a book that is meant to illuminate some history that is very rarely talked about in schools and in communities today. And my hope is that kids who understand the history of where we've been as a black community will be able to help build movements that go forward. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to, to come on the show and share a little bit about your story. And um, I wish you continued success with your writing and 
and all of your um, experience with young people. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Terrific. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you, as always, to my sponsors and our watch team of on-air contributors for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.